0: hey guys this is cody turner you know the pod life does not stop ladies and gentlemen it just keeps going ad nauseam an endless series of audio conversations pushing forth into the great unknown or maybe just a boy with a mic looking to eternalize moments in time in any event in this episode of 10 talks i speak with my colleague kristen kolbertson kristen is a fourth year phd student in philosophy at the university of connecticut and she works primarily on Buddhist philosophy, feminist philosophy, ethics, and the intersection between the three. For her dissertation, Kristen is approaching issues of oppression in feminist philosophy from a Buddhist perspective. I think I'm doing justice to her basic thesis. I hope so. In the episode, Kristen and I briefly discuss her dissertation before having a wide-ranging conversation about another paper of hers on different buddhist perspectives of personal identity. Uh, some things we talk about in this paper include whether the self actually exists, what the psychological pros and cons are of believing that the self does not exist, we touch upon the notion of karma, reincarnation, the nature of consciousness, and much more. So fasten your seatbelt, kids, for I present to you, Christian, Kolbertson. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain
1: away with your host, Cody Turner. It's storm coming, Mr. Wayne.
0: I'm here with Kristen Kolbranson, fourth year PhD student at the University of Connecticut. Thank you for coming on the pod.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to talk about your paper on Buddhism. I thought first you could just... Tell the listeners where your interest in Buddhism derives from and how you've come to do this philosophical work that you're doing now.
1: Um, so, uh, when I was an undergrad, I did a lot of um, like feminist philosophy and social philosophy, um, and then when I got into grad school, um, I kind of developed a personal interest in Buddhist philosophy. Not not really for like scholarly purposes, but just um, you know. Meditation and um, things like that. Um,
0: How did it get on your radar to begin with? Was it like an app? Or? Um,
1: it was actually uh, my my husband started meditating, um, and he he started reading um, Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama, um, and he was like, "Hey, you should you should really check out these books. These are really great." Um, and so I read a couple books by the Dalai Lama. Um, we kind of both started looking into other forms of Buddhism early Buddhism, um, you know, the Pali Canon and things like that. Um, And over time, I just kind of realized there's a lot of very difficult to resolve um, questions in feminism and in social philosophy that I think Buddhism actually has really compelling answers to. But nobody's doing that. Um, So so kind of around the first year of grad school, um, I started wanting to write papers on you know, how there are these Buddhist concepts that can actually address these problems in social philosophy and nobody's looking to Buddhism. Nobody's really looking to religion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of resources um, in, in many religions, but Buddhism was the one I, I knew the most about and was kind of most interested in. So I just kind of went in that direction.
0: Could you talk about that for a second before we jump into your paper? How do concepts of Buddhism, how can they be implemented into feminist philosophy?
1: Um, What's that connection? Yeah, yeah, so, um, so uh, like, for example, in, in feminist philosophy, um, a, a big problem is how, how should people respond to oppression? Um, and one way that some people think we should respond to oppression is to be Uh, righteously angry about it right we should have kind of we should have the disposition um, that looks at oppression and says that's so wrong it's it's intentionally wrong it's harming people Um, and we want to have kind of a strong disposition right so we should be angry about it rather than you know um, depressed or um, sad or dejected or something like that Um, So so they go with anger and it's kind of a a moral version of anger that's um, righteous indignation or or something like that
0: And you might argue that that anger is a motivating force to try to fight the oppression or something like that It can be useful
1: Yeah, it's not just
0: undirected outrage,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, it's not undirected outrage Yeah, but but people yeah people do say that that helps you fight, right? Um, That shows that you respect yourself as an agent who's worthy of certain treatment that you're not getting Um, But the problem with that that I think a lot of people would see right away is, well, some people uh, live in a state of oppression all the time. And so these people then are, in order to be moral, in order to have the right kind of disposition, um, they need to be angry all the time. And that's not going to be good for them.
0: That's just not a psychologically healthy life to lead
1: yeah yeah right exactly so like that's going to erode your character that's going to make you miserable um it's it's problematic in a lot of ways and feminists are worried about these problems um and some people will say something like well that's just kind of the unfortunate outcome of oppression that's what oppression does that's how it harms people is it makes them um it, it puts them in these places where the moral thing to do is a harmful one um and I think that that's not good enough. I think that um, we don't have to hurt ourselves in order to be moral in these unfortunate circumstances. Um, so, so I think Buddhist philosophy gives us um, a few things that, that can help. One thing is, um, I think it gives an analysis of anger that kind of shows how um, it can't solve these problems because it's uncontrollable. Um, it's something that clouds your mind Um, it ruins your judgment, um, and it, and it's toxic. So it kind of just leads to more anger. Um,
0: yeah. When you're angry, it's presumably going to be harder to find the most pragmatic solution to oppression.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think so.
0: Even if it's motivating, it's right,
1: right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, and it's really prone to like being misdirected, you know, like if you've ever been angry at someone who really did wrong to you. I would bet that right after that, you probably lashed out at someone else who didn't do wrong to you, or, oh, or yeah. you know, like I've done that. So, <laughs> um, so you know, you're not always able to see like what's the appropriate target. Um, so I think the the idea of like, you know, justified anger being appropriately directed is is not quite realistic. Um, so, so, Buddhist philosophy can kind of analyze that and show, like, well, these are how this is how anger damages your mind, and this is how, um, you know, you you can't really control it because it gets out of hand, it clouds your judgment, all these things. Um, and then the other thing I think it can give us is is a an idea of compassion that is strong enough to um, to meet our moral concerns without causing suffering to the person. Um, so we can feel. Um, compassion as a strong motivator to stop injustice Um, because it's aware compassion understands suffering it's aware of suffering and it immediately feels motivated to stop it Um, but there's no anger or or, um, you know there's there's not really anything bad associated with that it's just a, a, a real understanding of how you are connected with other beings and you don't want them to suffer yeah. um, so you do things to stop them from suffering
0: and just generally speaking it's kind of just love is a better answer than hate and I've seen this in political disputes that I get in with people a lot of times um, the more effective way to win a political dispute is to approach your interlocutor with love instead yeah. of saying you know, all of your views are racist or something, like establish some common humanity and then the other person is listening and you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's just a more effective solution. Yeah. Going back to the anger thing, though, do you think that if you become a skilled meditator, it's possible to completely eradicate anger from your psychology? Because it seems to like just in my, you know, when using the Headspace app, mm-hmm. in my, meditating like 15 minutes every day, it seems like I've gotten better at responding to the emotions, but I haven't gotten better at ridding the emotions from my personal psychology. So oh, the anger will yeah. arise, and then I'll notice it as anger, and then I won't, let, I won't be trapped by it. You know, I can say, okay, that's anger. I'm not going to psychologically suffer over that, and then move on. But I don't seem to have any control over the initial manifestation of the negative emotions. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether it's possible to actually control that it?
1: That? yeah that's a good question yeah that's and that's perceptive too um i don't know <laughs> um I, I, so okay i kind of have a policy of of never saying that a person can't achieve some kind of state because i think there's i think there are monks who never feel anger um <clears throat> and i think that there are people who there might even be you know lay people who have meditated just a ton and they've become super awesome at it and they never feel anger either. I'm not one of those people, Um, so so, yeah, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if everyone can do it. Um, I do believe that some people can. Um, (coughs) And if I were to like, guess like from experience and reading, if I were to guess why maybe some people um, are able to achieve that, I think our beliefs have a lot to do with whether anger arises or not. Um, and I think our, I think our habits, our emotional habits have a lot to do with that too. Like there, you know, you, you might just get to a point where you, um, you're so quick to diffuse your anger that it just doesn't arise anymore. Um, I think that's possible. Um, but, but also I, I think it's possible that you become so, um, so convinced of maybe something like like, not-self, or you become so convinced that we just... Compassion is the answer, that we should feel compassion for all beings or something like that, that it just doesn't make sense t- for anger to arise in you anymore.
0: Oh, okay. So that belief is just so strong that it kind of overpowers anger. or It, yeah. it suppresses it because yeah. you're just so strongly committed to compassion.
1: Right. And then, and then the anger doesn't, like there just wouldn't be anger there at, at that point. Like when, when situations arise that might provoke some people to anger, to you it might provoke something else because your belief structure and your, your kind of mental world just doesn't really support You're just not anger. even
0: perceiving it in the same light as the other person.
1: Yeah. But I yeah. guess
0: generally speaking, it seems like, yeah, I guess I've viewed emotion as analogous to thought within the context of Buddhism where, you know, to be mindful, it's it's a matter of detaching from this endless cycle of thoughts that keep popping into consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not about getting rid of those thoughts. You know, it's not like, I'm not the creator of my thoughts. I'm just the conscious receiver. They just keep coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If if I'm attached to those thoughts, then I'm, I can be held hostage to the next negative self chatter that comes streaming into consciousness. I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that's who you are, Cody. But, (laughs) but if, you know, for me, it's been a matter of learning how to detach to detach from this process of thought and not necessarily get rid of the negative self chatter because again that seems like it's beyond my control, but that might just be because I'm not doing meditation right or I'm not fully enlightened, you know <laughs> yeah <I> oh <don't> no
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't know i I think meditation like meditation's different for all minds, right like it's you know it is it is what it is and and I think that's a hard thing like. I'm, I would not consider myself to be a skilled meditator. I just have meditated and I've learned some stuff. Um, and I've had that same experience where I'm like, well, you know, you get to the point where you're like, am I not like, what's up? Why is it so terrible in here? Why is like, why? Where's the enlightenment? Yeah, I know. Like, I did the app. Come <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm supposed to be calmer now. Um, or you stop meditating and you're like, I'm just pissy all the time. <laughs> like, I don't understand why, why is it not working? Um, but I mean, I I think like there is something freeing about realizing like, no, your, your thoughts are subject to cause and effect, right? Like your thoughts arise in you, not from whatever, you know, you're not minutely deciding which thoughts arise in you and which don't, right? (coughs) They're just, they just keep coming. Like you said, so,
0: um, yeah, so and I'm like, I, all right, now I'm going to think this, now right. I'm going to
1: think that. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you can't think a thought before you think it.
1: Right, <laughs> right, which is weird and upsetting and, you know, but um, but that's just how it is. Like, that's how our minds work. And so um, at least being able to um, detach from the thoughts and understand that it's it's just a stream that's going to keep coming, um, I think that helps a lot. And it, and it usually helps, like, more than you think. I don't know if you've ever found, like, you know, at at some point you'll just realize, like, if this were, you know, a month ago, I would have been so pissed off, but I'm not, like, Mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty okay with it. Um, Or, you know, oh, wow, my thought patterns are, like, way nicer than they used to be or something like that.
0: Yeah. No, I definitely have realized that. It's just the incremental progress. It's more, yeah, I'm less tempted to go through all these mental gymnastics when I have a negative thought. You know, it used to be I have a negative thought, then I'm like, Wait, Cody, that's just a sensation in consciousness. That's not indicative of any fundamental fact about who you are. So you shouldn't be attached to this negative thought. You should just live in the present. But thinking about living in the present is by definition not living in the present. So you just have to stop thinking right now and live in the present. So it's like I used to be whenever I got trapped in this negative thought loop, I would go through all these mental gymnastics to try to get out of it. And as I become better at meditating, I realized that there's no need to go through those mental gymnastics. I've been through those mental gymnastics a million times, I already know that I can go through all of them and it will just return to zero. But hmm. I'm already at zero. So there's no need to indulge in all of that metacognitive work. You can just return to the present. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's helped for sure. That's cool.
1: Done. That's really cool.
0: Um, but do you want to jump into your paper?
1: Sure, if you want, yeah.
0: So, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing your thesis here, mm. but the basic idea, so you're talking about the Buddha's, uh, theory of self, and you note that the Buddha is ambiguous between what you call the no-self view and the not-self view, Mm. where the not-self view is kind of a practical view about how to alleviate mental suffering, and the no-self view is a metaphysical view about the nature of the self. I thought we could start by, uh, because you talk about the Buddha's conception of the self within the context of Derek Parfit's theory of personal identity. Derek Parfit is a famous philosopher who recently passed away. I thought you could start by just kind of Wheeling out Derek Parfit's theory of personal identity and how it contrasts with some of the other main theories just to kind of uh, Divide up the conceptual
1: landscape, so to speak. Sure. Yeah um, so um, Derek Parfit, um, I'm sure uh, I'm sure there are people who would like w- Disagree with this characterization of Parfit, but for my purposes um, And how how I was reading him and what I'm paying attention to um, He has kind of a, a large ethical project in reasons and persons Um, and it's I mean it's I think it's kind of a it's a huge philosophical project that kind of talks about everything it's like you know life the universe and everything Um, but in in terms of um, his theory of persons he adopts a bundle theory um, where he says um, human beings are just bundles of properties and what we really care about with personal identity, when I say, you know, I want to talk to Cody, I don't want to talk to this person over here. What, I, what I'm talking about there is is your kind of causal connectedness and your psychological continuity through time. So you're not, you know, a, a, a unitary person, you're a bunch of stuff that's all wrapped up together and it causes... You know the next bunch of stuff that's all wrapped up together and is going to be called cody mm-hmm. um so it's it's a um so yeah i guess bundle theory is the, is the best way to call it that's kind of what he calls it um and he contrasts that with like a cartesian ego theory or something like that where you think you know the person has maybe a soul that is what is responsible for their persistence over time or you know they have um some kind of underlying substance of any kind that is that is the same over time and that's what's responsible for their identity. He's saying no, there's there's no single thing that's responsible for identity. Um, Instead, it's kind of this uh, this causally connected bundle of properties um, that that persists over time. Yeah.
0: One way I like to think about this question is just by asking what makes me or you the same person as you were when you were 5 years old. Yeah. Like the 5-year-old Cody is so different from the 23-year-old Cody. So what is it? We don't view I don't view my 5-year-old self as an ancestor.
1: You're right. Of yeah. I view that yeah. as my
0: past self. And so the both of these the ego theory and the psychological continuity theory both provide answers. The psychological continuity theory is saying, well, the fact that you're psychologically continuous, the fact that you can you have memories from that period of your life and you can manifest those memories in your present consciousness, there is this psychological connection. Mm-hmm. And the ego theory, well, because you have the same soul, you have the same Cartesian, immutable ego or yeah. whatnot. One question I had about the bundle theory and is whether you're talking about the bundle theory in a reductionist sense or in a limitivist sense. So it seems like there are two different attitudes you can take regarding the bundle theory. You could say that okay, the ego theory is false. So we're going to say that the bundle itself is the self. And we're going to call that the self. That's kind of a reductionist view. Yeah. Where you still retain the concept of selfhood. And then the element of this view, it seems to me, would be, okay, since the ego theory is false, there is no self. There is this bundle, but we're not going to call that a self. That's not Mm -hmm. a true self. Mm -hmm. So the self doesn't exist. Which of those interpretations of the view are you operating with, if any? Um, Or if you have a determinant.
1: Well, so I think I, I looked at... This kind of question, Um, and I actually, I I think it doesn't really matter for my purposes which one you take. Um, I think the um, I think the reductionist and the eliminativist approach will have the same kind of issue. Um, It might just be a
0: matter of semantics, too, right? Yeah. Oh, you might you want to call someone might call the bundle self, someone might not call the bundle self, but we're both agreeing that there is no ego here. We're both agreeing. Seems like substantially we both have the same view, just a disagreement in language, maybe. I don't know.
1: I think it could be that um, that if I'm trying to think about, like, I read something specifically on this, and I'm trying to think of what they said, and I, and I think the um, something that was kind of important about the distinction is um, eliminativists might be saying since there's no such thing as a unitary self, we ought not to even talk about it. We should not even have that concept at all. And I think reductionists would say, well, the concept is helpful um, and we can still have it, but we need to just know that there's that it reduces to these other things. Um, So I think that Parfit is a reductionist um, because I think he's perfectly comfortable talking about persons and personal identity. Um, In fact, I think he needs to do that. Um, so I don't think he goes so far as to eliminate the concept of self he just wants us to understand that we reduce to bundles of properties um, and that should change our beliefs about ethics um, right and other things
0: but as you know it's not clear whether he's endorsing a metaphysical view about the self so what is this distinction between the no self view and the not self view
1: yeah. So, um, OK, so so Parfit is definitely making a metaphysical assertion about persons. He's saying, no, in fact, there is nothing that, that um, underlies your existence over time. Instead, it's just a causal. You're a causal stream of a bunch of stuff that gets all wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're more all your stuff is more causally intertwined than it is with my stuff. And that's why we're two separate persons. Um, but uh the the buddha i would say i I think parfit grossly mischaracterizes the buddha um i think most people would agree with that most people who study buddhist philosophy would probably agree with that um i i think that parfit says you know the buddha said uh the buddha said that we don't have a self um and therefore he was a bundle theorist (laughs) um and I, i think that is that is really fast. Um, So yeah, (laughs) right. Um, So uh, one thing I would say is the Buddha never said there's no self. Um, If you look in the the Pali canon, um, there's a really great um, passage. Um, It's Ananda Sutta, um, where uh, the Buddha is asked point blank, is there a self? Um, And the Buddha refuses to answer. Um, And there's some there's some context to this so he's being asked by um, a wanderer that he knows um, and the buddha is a teacher the buddha is not a philosopher um, so when the buddha gives teachings to people it has to do with who they are he would give um, you know, he would give you teachings differently than he would give to someone else um, because he knows you and he knows what you need to hear in order to get you more towards enlightenment. Mm. Um, so there's not
0: some general prescription for enlightenment.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in this, in this, uh, in this passage, you know, he's asked like, "Is there a self?" The Buddha doesn't answer, and the wanderer says, "Well, is there no self?" And the Buddha doesn't answer, um, and so the wanderer walks away. Um, and then his um, one of the Buddha's closest followers, Ananda, um, says, why didn't you answer? And the Buddha says, well, if I had said, yes, there's a self, wouldn't that lead to such and such suffering? And he says, yes. And then he says, well, if I said there's no self, wouldn't that lead to such and such suffering? Um, and, so, and so that's why he didn't answer. Um, so we can take that, I think, as um, maybe... A caution against asking the asking the question of is there a self, um, and trying to derive a theory from from whatever answer we get. Um, so the other the other stuff that I that I would draw from for, for to support this interpretation is um, there's there's passages in the polycanon canon that suggest there definitely is a self, and there's passages that suggest there is not. Um, and if we think about this in the concept, in the, the context of teaching and eliminating suffering, that makes perfect sense. Um, because not-self um, is not a theory. Not-self is a tool. Not-self is a way of saying, um, you know, am I causing myself suffering because of the way that I'm perceiving myself right now? Am I building an identity for myself that is causing this suffering? Um, And oftentimes the answer is yes Um, But I I think as as the Buddha points out in in that that one passage where he doesn't answer if there's a self Believing strongly that there's no self will also lead (coughs) to suffering Um, Because a a common question that people ask in 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 Buddhist theory is well if there's no self who gets enlightened? Right (laughs) Right who transcends death? Nobody Um, and the Buddha doesn't want to say that somebody transcends death um, something transcends death so I, I think we, we want to leave room for, um, for for something but when you go around trying to theorize about what that something is um, I think with what the Buddha I think is trying to tell us is that can that can kind of tie you in knots that um, are not really solving your, your problem
0: okay so the psychological suffering that derives from thinking that there is no self is just this idea that there is no immortality. Like, if there is no self, then when you die, there is no transcendence, and that can be really scary. Yeah. What precisely is the psychological suffering that's attached to the idea that there is this permanent self, the ego theory? It just has oh, to yeah. do with what we've been talking about, right? Yeah. But maybe just, like, bring that to the forefront to compare and contrast the two kinds of different psychological suffering.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um. Well, I think... I think a lot of the suffering that we, um, that we encounter in daily lives ha- has to do with this kind of idea that you have a permanent self. So anger, um, I think, is a great, uh, a great example of this. Um, when someone insults you um, or takes something from you or something like that and you become angry, um, I think that anger is usually grounded in the idea that some, some other has harmed you um, you guys are separate. You're two distinct beings um, And you have rights over some specific thing or you know this thing they took is mine um, They offended me as a person um, and and there there are maybe other ways of looking at situations like that like um, you you might look at it as um just kind of phenomena that happens like you might look at it a lot like a tornado running through a town you'd say well things happen people take things um and and if if you are are less attached to the idea that you're a distinct being and they're a distinct being and they're intentionally harming you um that can kind of soften things up a little bit and make it make you a little more able to handle situations like that um that might not be the best example there's probably other ones that are better but
0: One example that, yeah, I think it's a good example. Another example, which is kind of a diachronic example, is I'll have done something really embarrassing like yesterday, and then I'm still suffering over it today because I'm under the belief that that person yesterday is the same person today. So because that person yesterday did something stupid and embarrassing, I'm the same stupid embarrassing person today, and therefore I have to suffer over it. But Mm -hmm. if you realize that there is really no continuity of selfhood across time, then you, complete, you can put completely let go of that.
1: So um, yeah, if you, I, I think there, there are reasons to keep a sense of self um, and, and reasons to kind of let, let go of one. And you wanna be able to do that um, at different times uh, in different situations. So um, there's, there's an example, uh, so like in, in, well in your example, you, you wanna be able to um, not fret over whatever it is that happened yesterday you're you know you're a new person today you can do whatever you want you're not bound by you know whatever whatever crap happened the other day but you do want to be able to retain um, maybe a sense of responsibility um you know if you did something yesterday that was not only embarrassing but maybe offensive to someone you want to be able to say like i as the owner of my actions i did that and i want to apologize or i I did that thing, and I hope to never do that thing again, or something like that. And you kind of need a somehow continuous sense of self to, to feel that way, right? Like, um, so so sometimes you you really want to retain that, um, and that we can we can talk about. Um, kind of the like Buddhist idea of karma if we if we want to do that um, but th- the idea yeah. of maintaining responsibility for your actions and owning your actions um, is really important and I think if you if you just remove the self concept entirely um, you may have a real problem with that
0: yeah, I haven't really <laughs> thought about that you can use an anti-realist <laughs> view about the self to justify moral atrocities oh yeah hey Cody why did you uh you know do those horrible things yesterday. I'm like, oh, that wasn't me. That was some <laughs> other dude. <laughs> yeah.
1: he
0: sounds like a bad guy. I'd stay away from him. <laughs>
1: right, exactly, exactly. Like, you, yeah, you don't really want to associate with people who truly don't believe <laughs> in any concept of self, right? That's a little right. weird. Um, and it's also, I think, psychologically unrealistic. Like, mm-hmm. we have such strong feelings of being... One individual person, um, although that might not be the full truth, which we want to understand, um, it seems a little like I just don't see myself being able to be like I'm just not even a person. Like mm-hmm. I don't. That seems that's like too far for me. I don't. I don't see how yeah, to do that.
0: Yeah, me me neither. But I feel like I have phenomenologically broken through the so-called illusion of the self. So I, I can see that the self is an illusion. But at the same time, I take your point that you can't really operate in day-to-day life with the idea that you're not a self. Maybe you can make a distinction between personhood and selfhood. I don't know whether this is possible, but one way I conceptualize it is self is the idea that there's this agent riding around in your head, this immutable agent, and that is an illusion. You can break through that and realize there is no thinker of thoughts. It's just thoughts. It's just consciousness and sensations rising in consciousness. So you can be an anti-realist about selfhood maybe, but be a realist about personhood? So like I'm not a self but I'm still a person? Does that conceptual distinction resonate? At yeah,
1: all? absolutely. Um and people do that. Um Buddhists do that and um and I think Derek Parfit does it too. Um cuz we have to have a concept of personhood, right? Like yeah, there's yeah. got to be one. Um because otherwise everything is insane. There's no persons <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Um so you can believe <laughs> Yeah, like what is what is this then? Um but you can believe that persons reduce to elements um without believing that persons don't exist so so derek parfit never says persons don't exist Mm -hmm. he thinks that persons are made up of um bundles of of properties that change over time Um, and 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 buddhists would say there's no self in the sense that um or some buddhists would say there's no self in the sense that there's a one element that underlies existence um 100 Um, that's, that's kind of the, I I think that's why they use the term self, um, because, um, they're looking for like, what is the essence of a person? And in the Indian philosophy prior to them in the Vedic traditions, um, they were very, very, um, concerned with the idea of self. Um, and that, that underlying self is, um, the, the reason that you're alive. That's your animating force is that you have this, um, this essential self that never changes. Um, and so in Buddhist philosophy after that kind of has this, this idea of not self where they say, um, you know, some people interpret it as that thing doesn't even exist at all. Other people interpret it as that's not really a helpful thing for us to, to use, um, or what have you, but, but essentially, um, self is going to refer, I think usually to some kind of like essential being and person can refer to whatever whatever it is that we believe makes human bodies and human minds walk around the earth um that would be a person
0: and on so the buddhist view of personhood the personhood reduces to these five a- aggregates you say right there's rupa the body or the physical form mm-hmm. there's vedana, the effect or sensation i'm probably gonna butcher some of these names. i don't know how to say that
1: one <laughs> that you're looking at
0: samjana pers- perception samskara volition and vijnana consciousness so the buddhist reduct- view of personhood reduces personhood to these three five aggregates yeah and all of these five aggregates are um non-permanent right they're they're, yes. they're always changing yes i was wondering whether you could say that about consciousness when i was reading i was reading yeah these are always changing but is consciousness itself changing i was thinking maybe consciousness it seems like consciousness might be permanent like this just mm. plane of consciousness that always exists and there are different sensations that are permanent, that are arising in it, but consciousness is kind of a mainstay. Do you, does that?
1: Yeah, intuition that's a, um, make sense. Yeah, it does. I might be wrong. I just I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think the the real answer is I have no idea. Um, but I think
0: I just don't know what it would mean to say that consciousness changes.
1: Yeah, yeah. The
0: contents of consciousness are always changing, but consciousness itself seems to be permanent in some sense. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, some people would say like some people would say like well when you sleep your consciousness is interrupted or something um, right. I, I think uh, in the Vedic traditions that is the Atman is that that permanent pure consciousness um, is is what never changes so they would say yes, absolutely And that's what you're trying to get to when you meditate is you're trying to get to that pure awareness And that's you and everything else that you think everything else that changes and um, is subject to time All of that is not really you mm-hmm. um,
0: And all of that is just occurring within this plane of consciousness. Yeah, right or field of consciousness. Or yeah,
1: yeah, exactly um, and so and, and I think um it depends on which buddhists you ask um i am uh a little strange on that front i don't um i don't care too much about traditional lines um i'm interested in buddhism as it um as it can contribute to philosophy now <laughs> so um so i'm a little bit sloppy with with traditional lines um and in terms of different Traditions interpret the aggregates differently. So and I I don't really know um, I don't know if I'm I don't know if some would say that consciousness changes and others would say that it, it wouldn't but in terms of the In terms of the aggregate of consciousness, I think that it, it must be subject to time um, and and uh, and change because it is an aggregate and all aggregates I'm pretty sure, I mean, at least if you take from the polycanon, aggregates are um, impermanent, Mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, And they're subject to dependent origination. So they're subject to cause and effect. um, And anything that is subject to to cause and effect has to be able to arise and pass away. Um, So consciousness must be able to arise and pass away. That's my best answer, um, but honestly, that's not something that I've like done a bunch of work on or anything, so I, I, might, be, I might be very wrong about that.
0: No, that's uh, I haven't considered that line of reasoning, though. That line of reasoning certainly makes sense, and I think that is one way to go about arguing that consciousness itself is impermanent. Um, yeah, I don't know either. But yeah, I don't know. I was,
1: <laughs> I was wondering
0: whether... We, let's return back to this notion of uh, karma and maybe put that yeah. into play. So the notion of karma, it seems to be antithetical to this no-self view because... I don't really know that much about karma, but the basic mm-hmm. idea is that you, in some sense, are going to survive this life and be reincarnated into a different entity in the next life. So how does that figure into this discussion that we're having?
1: Yeah, um, so karma is really important for Buddhist philosophy, and it's very different um, from, say, uh, like the like the Vedic notions of karma. So um, the, the Vedic notions of karma are often very much centered on rebirth um but from um i I would say like at least from from the tradition that i pull the most from most frequently which is the the thai forest tradition of buddhism which is a a theravada early buddhism tradition um at least for them um they tend to be a little bit less heavy-handed on the metaphysics um so karma is about um You know all actions that you do thoughts included mental actions physical actions speech actions all of those have consequences that will bear fruit um so um they a a metaphor they use which i really like is sowing seeds every time you think a thought every time you say something you're sowing seeds and you want to sow good seeds that will bear good fruit um so whether you believe in rebirth or not um isn't terribly important um, for okay karma. so kar-
0: karma is not necessarily tied to the notion of reincarnation not necessarily no okay but under some controls it is
1: yeah okay yeah um, and and certainly even for some Buddhists it, it will be um, tied to reincarnation but it doesn't have to be because it is also very much tied to to your life you know right now this one <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and not the next one. Right. Um, so uh, so so the way I take that um, is you you have to have, an understanding of continuity causal continuity um, and, and people often say something like well if you have you know if you're the owner of your actions and your actions bear fruit and all of that whose actions who is this you know um, who's doing actions and bearing fruit <laughs> <laughs> Right.
0: Um,
1: and I, I don't know I, I think that if you if you remember that these teachings are about Um, addressing suffering and they're not about presenting metaphysical theories, I think it all works just fine. (laughs) Um, But I think if you try to make theories about it, then you're absolutely right. Who on earth is the person who is getting, you know, who's doing actions and bearing, bearing their consequences.
0: Um, do you think believing in the notion of karma has practical benefits in the yes. same way that believing in the notion of not-self does? I do. Like, whether <laughs> karma exists or not in a metaphysical, real sense, mm-hmm. it's still worthwhile to believe in it because it can make you an ethically better person or something like that?
1: Definitely. Um, yeah, so um, so there's this uh, this monk whose writings I really love, um, his name is Thanissaro Bhikkhu, um, he's a Thai forest monk, and he talks about karma a lot. Um, and since reading some of the stuff that he has, um, explained, I used to think karma was kind of a silly, like what goes around, comes around.
0: That's kind of where I'm at with it, to be honest. Yeah. I always thought it was (laughs) kind of a
1: stupid notion. I was like, well, that's some weird metaphysical principle that just, just like scaring children into not being bad. (laughs) Um, but it's not actually, or it doesn't have to be. Well, Um, I just tend
0: to think like everything is chaos and random. So that kind of cuts against the notion of karma. But, um, yeah, yeah, tell me why I should believe it
1: though. Um, well, um, I mean, so, uh, it's. I think very important for um, the, in, in most Buddhist worldviews, it's very important that um, things in the world are caused, and you can't really escape that, so, um, so all phenomena have a cause, and they have an effect, and they're all kind of wrapped up together in this kind of um, it's not deterministic necessarily, but um, very causally dependent mm-hmm. kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you think that, then karma is almost necessarily true. Because um, mm-hmm. if you're in this phenomenal world that is completely, um, that, that's, there's cause and effect and you can't really escape that, then your actions are probably have effects, right? Your, your actions are caused and they have effects, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have control over, over which actions you perform. Um, and, and I find mm-hmm. it to be very helpful um, when I think about sowing seeds. Um, because Mm -hmm. it makes me take my thoughts seriously. makes me take my actions more seriously. (laughs) Um, what I say, um, because you can see if, you know, if you meditate and you think about, um, you know, if you meditate on the notion of sowing seeds in in your thoughts or something, you can watch them bear fruit. Like you can watch your, your thoughts just, you know, the toxic ones just produce more toxic thoughts. Um, which in turn
0: produces toxic behavior.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's very concrete. It's a very like, um, it, it's not even like mind-blowing or anything. <laughs> it's, it's it's one of those things you could be like, well, yeah, sure. Um, oh, okay. You so know. yeah,
0: there's nothing spooky or magical about it. It's no. just something that is by definition true when ruminating upon the nature of causation and the interconnectedness of yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, I mean the sowing seeds thing is just so true. I uh, it, like here's one example, right? Um, I'm really nervous about speaking tomorrow in front of a group of people and i'm just caught up in anxiety about it and that is sowing a seed for my presentation tomorrow to go worse than it otherwise would Mm -hmm. so not only is it making this future event more likely to go bad but it but it's also making my present state of consciousness worse because my present state of consciousness is paralyzed by this anxiety Mm -hmm. so if you sow seeds in the wrong way, it's it's doubly bad. Yeah. Both for your future and your present. So yeah. there's no, you can kind of just, once you realize that, you realize that there's no point in being anxious, mm-hmm. you know? You can just drop it and you're more likely to do better. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's one example that popped into my mind when you were talking about it.
1: Yeah, that's a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, there's tons of examples like that, I think. Um, you know, and it, and it helps in a few ways with, kind of understanding your actions too, because you are, you are kind of at the mercy of your past actions, but you are also, um, to, to some extent able to make different choices in the present. So, um, you know, if you had all these anxious thoughts and you got yourself all amped up for your presentation, um, well, you are, at the mercy of a little bit extra burden. You put that burden on yourself yesterday and you and you kind of constructed your mind in such a way that it's a little bit harder. But at the same time, um, you are in control of your actions right then and you can address those burdens um, in a skillful or an unskillful way. Um, so you can say like, okay, well, I have all this anxiety. Um, I'm gonna go for a run beforehand and I'm gonna chill out. you know. Or you can say, well, I have all this anxiety. Uh, I don't know what to do. I think it's just gonna be awful. It's just gonna be awful and I'm gonna go into it and It's gonna be awful, you know, like you can and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Though. Yeah, right. Exactly um, um, But I, I mean that I've found karma to be helpful just in, in getting me to um, To view my my thoughts and my actions as as things which will um, Produce similar results in the future. Um, yes, I, I find that to be helpful
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that like a, Before I discovered Buddhism, I was kind of under the notion that, well, what you can think one thing and then do another. Like your thoughts don't have any direct bearing on your actions. Mm -hmm. But then once you, once I started getting more steeped in Buddhism, I realized that that's just so not true. Yeah. Just so (laughs) not true. Like your mentality really does define your reality. That's kind of the biggest thing Buddhism has made me realize. And you have control over your mentality. You know, you can make it better via meditation and things like this. Yeah. Um, returning to the main thesis of your paper. So this is just right from your papers. You say, the not-self-view offers the same ethical benefits as the no-self-view, but is much less costly. The no-self-view requires a metaphysical, co- metaphysical commitment to anti-realism about the self, which may not be psychologically feasible and could have nihilistic consequences. Going back to what we were saying about how, you know, moral responsibility might be mm-hmm. contingent upon the notion of self. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you say, the not-self-view is intentionally uncommitted. This allows it to be Used to dispel suffering caused by false views of the self without leaving the person groundless. So I have a couple questions here. The first, I'm wondering, is it possible to really be a not self theorist without being a no self theorist?
1: Oh, great question! Like, it's,
0: like mean? one might argue that endorsing, like, to be a not self theorist without being a no self theorist is kind of a having your cake and eating it too type deal. Like, can one get the bot the positive psychological benefits? of detaching from selfhood without believing in an anti-realist ontology about the self. Oh, yeah. Is it like, you know, so if I'm gonna go to so the not self view, it's like, no, we're not gonna take a position on the metaphysical view of the self, but mm-hmm. it might be pragmatically helpful mm-hmm. to believe that the self doesn't really exist in the strong sense. But can you follow that pragmatic advice without being committed to the anti-realist view? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I think you can. Um, so uh, I think the way that you can is um, first and foremost to think about, um, to think about identity, which I don't, I don't know if it's in this version of the paper, but um, to think about identity as an activity and not as a fact of reality. So we can be agnostic about what the nature of persons is. We can say, yeah, I don't know if there's a self or not. I'm not sure about that. Um, but what I do know is the self that I Identify with is actually really inconsistent and changes over time um, And changes mm-hmm. depending on my mood changes depending on my situation yeah. um, And so at the very least I can stop grabbing on to my ideas of the self and say well all this stuff that I'm like really conscious of Seems to not have like a metaphysical grounding. So I'm not going to act as if it does. Um,
0: so then would then would the not self-view prescribe self-deception if we really, if let's say the ego theory is true. Yeah. If the ego theory is true, then the not self-view would entail a kind of self-deception where you're conceptualizing the self in a way that isn't true. Which it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Again, these are just thoughts I had. Yeah. I
1: yeah, so, so that's I'm just throwing a, at you. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um yeah, so fictionalism is a bit of a worry here, yeah. Um because cause also if the no self-view is true, then aren't we still um then I'm I'm saying, you know, draw on this fiction sometimes when it's when it's beneficial. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I want to support that. Um and I don't think that I think that most Buddhist schools would not want to support that. Um and yeah, I think if the ego theory is true, um, the closest thing to fictionalism that I would be comfortable with is is something like, well, the ego theory is true, um, but we are unable to um, we're unable to really understand what that means as long as we're kind of stuck in this world of of suffering and mental phenomena. Um, and so we need to, um, I think we could still be wrong about the ego Mm. in, in our everyday kind of conceptions of ourselves. And it, and it seems that we are, um, Mm -hmm. it seems that when you, when you sit and you watch your identity, you watch your thoughts over time, you start to, I think most meditators would say at, at some point they found that, um, the identities they thought that they had are, are not, are not real. Um, a lot like Hume said, you know, when I look for a self, I can't find one, um, right. you know, like
0: He just finds perceptions, sensations, memories that he associates with the self but Exactly, the self
1: itself. exactly, not yeah the self
0: itself. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, so so I think there's, there's good reason to at least say that um, We don't have good grounding for an ego theory And if ego theory is true um, We could still be wrong about about that ego, the nature of that ego, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, not-self can, can still allow you to, um, to stop making wrong claims about mm-hmm. the ego um, that maybe you, you know, maybe you don't understand the ego.
0: Yeah, and maybe another way you could go about it is say, well, yeah, maybe if the ego theory is true, the not-self view does entail a kind of self-deception, but sometimes self-deception or fictionalism can be psychologically helpful. Like, maybe an yeah. analogy is, if free will doesn't really exist, that's not something that we shouldn't be operating with that notion in day-to-day life. We should still act as if we're free. Yeah. And analogously, maybe if the ego theory really is true, we should still act as if um, there isn't this immutable self because it causes all this psychological suffering. So the fact, self-deception can be a good thing in some sure. scenarios. Maybe. sure.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I, that's that's one of those things. Like, I'm some on some days, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay with that. And other days, I'm like, no, it can't be. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know how I feel about that um, because I think you know, it just shouldn't. It something feels wrong about that. Like, it shouldn't be the case that we will suffer less based on this kind of false worldview. Because mm. the whole point is like, you know, if, if you if you read a lot of a lot of. Um, Buddhist scripture and um, all kinds of Buddhist philosophy, I think there's a strong thread of like, the reason we suffer so much is because of our ignorance about the world. We believe the world is this way when really it's that way. And so we're operating on this false understanding of the world. And so it's like...
0: Which implies that if we had complete knowledge of the world, we wouldn't be suffering anymore.
1: Exactly, right, right. So, you know, the, the idea is kind of like you think that there's no walls around you, so you keep running into a wall and hitting your head on it because you're ignorant and you don't <laughs> understand, right? So that's kind of the the idea. So, it, so yeah, it just shouldn't be the case that... Um, that truth about the world, understanding, would, would cause suffering. Um, but maybe they're wrong about that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I have no I idea. I'm not, I'm not actually as committed to, to, you know, like, the Buddhist worldview being correct, the Buddhist worldview. Um, you know, right. it could be they could be wrong. I don't know. You're more
0: interested in applying the Buddhist philosophy to other areas of philosophy that you care about. Right, which exactly. You, view, you think there's a meaningful connection that can be made. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Another question I had here, which... Kind of goes back to what we were talking about before we started the podcast with the monk. But what do you think, what's the relationship between pain and suffering, right? Because it oh, seems yeah. that one can be in pain without suffering. Like the monk burning himself alive in protest of the Vietnam War. He's clearly in pain, mm. but he's not suffering. For those who don't know, this monk, uh, well, maybe you could describe it. I think you know more about it than me.
1: Um, I, sure. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a, a monk named Thich Duke. Who, um, in protest of the Vietnam War, he um, he sat in the middle of uh, of a public square and he um, lit himself on fire and burned alive. Um, and he did this in protest um, of of the Vietnam War. And I I I don't know I don't know if he was um, if he was speaking at the time, but um, the idea was not. Um, not to commit suicide, but to express the seriousness of his message for peace, to express his commitment. Um, and he sat there fully still totally composed. It's haunting to watch.
0: It really is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's really horrifying. There's um, a video of it,
0: right? There's, it was captured. Mm-hmm. In video. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you watch it and it's just this, this person sitting completely still, um, burning alive. Um, and, uh, yeah, I I don't remember the what the point of that was. Well,
0: it seems to me watching that, that before watching that, I would have said pain and suffering. I would have almost been tempted to conflate the two. Mm-hmm. But after watching that, I'm like, well, he's clearly in pain, but he doesn't seem to be suffering because he's not behaviorally indicating that he's in pain, which suggests that you can experience pain without suffering from it. Um, I, yeah, I guess, do you think that's true? I guess it is. Is that...
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple things that might be helpful. Um, the term suffering uh, in in the Pali canon um, is, is the word dukkha, which um, does not translate to suffering. It translates to, well, actually, it doesn't translate, <laughs> um, but it, it includes suffering, stress, um, unease, um, Discomfort it's 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 everything that could be construed as basically. It's everything that is not, you know, like peace or kind of calm It's hard hard to say I guess but Mm. um, so suffering is is one uh, way of experiencing dukkha Mm. Um, So when when you hear, you know something like um, the the Four Noble Truths talking about um, you know, there's suffering um, really, what they're saying is there's dukkha. There is unease. There is stress. There is suffering. There is all of this. Yeah. Um, so, so there's um, there there's scriptures that talk about um, you know the the enlightened person um, or the the well instructed person um, experiencing pain um, but not mental pain. Um, so they kind of differentiate. They say, yes, your body still feels pain, um, mm. but you don't respond to that pain by um, freaking out in your mind. Um, and so w- suffering, I, I, don't, I don't know if um, you might say that he's still physically suffering, but he's not mentally suffering. Um, I, don't, I don't know how that kind of distinction you would want to parse that out. Um, yeah, but that makes sense to me I, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you can and I think we've all gotten to the point where we can feel some amount of pain without suffering mentally because it, you know, like when you're a child and you skin your knee, you freak out um, mm-hmm. but now you're kind of like well, that's, that's an amount of pain that I, I no longer freak out about, This part of life
0: And it seems like it'd be easier to parse suffering from pain when adopting this no-self view, because when you're operating under the no-self view, you have a pain but you're not viewing the pain as a part of you because right. there is no you so right. now that your pain so to speak is now just synonymous with any other sensation which isn't uh personalized right like yeah. i could i could hear someone else in pain and that's someone else's pain i clearly don't suffer from that because that pain is someone else's mm-hmm. but then now my pain isn't my pain anymore either because there is no self so now all sensations become depersonalized mm-hmm. in the same way that external sensations are depersonalized mm-hmm. um so, I mean, yeah, I, I can see how that's one positive benefit of the no-self-view. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. There's a lot of positive benefits. Yeah, there's benefits a lot of positive benefits. With the no-self-view. W- which view. we've been talking about. Definitely. Um, yeah, I just think it, it kind of ties you in a few knots that you might not want to be tied into. Um, right. And there's like a, a kind of an easier an easier option that's also, you know, handles the, the dissonance that you get with the no-self-view.
0: So what's the next step for your project, or for um, your thesis in general?
1: Uh, well, um, so I basically I, I want to um, just start addressing more questions from by drawing on Buddhist philosophy. So um, I I'm becoming um, a little bit more tradition specific um, in in the research because it's it's important to. Um, it's important to be consistent. Um, so I'm looking a lot at the Pali Canon um, and a lot at um, secondary sources on early Buddhism in particular. Um, and the reason I'm choosing that tradition over others is because they they tend not to address the metaphysics quite so much. They're a little bit more minimalist. Hmm. Um, in, and and the the Pali Canon is kind of the, the oldest set of Buddhist scriptures, um, so um so basically i'm looking for kind of a a minimalist buddhist framework um i want the least amount of metaphysical commitments that i can get right you don't Um, want to get
0: tied up in the metaphysics
1: exactly right i'm not trying to tell people to um start believing certain things about the phenomenal world i don't care what you believe about the phenomenal (laughs) world believe whatever um but i think that um the Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition in general um, offers some wonderful tools for addressing current philosophical questions, like whether we should be angry um, at oppression, like how we can um, have a genuine sense of well-being in a non-ideal kind of world, like like a world in which there is oppression. Um, because on a Buddhist worldview, everything is subject to um to aging and death and suffering there's there's going to be suffering wrapped up in the world um and the project is to be able to accept that live at peace with it and kind of go go beyond that a little bit so um so i think there are tools we can draw on that give us answers to how we live in this world where there's oppression there's injustice there's all these problems um and how we have a genuine sense of well-being and not just like an okay one um where we're like well it'd be better if we had you know healthcare and um <laughs> and you know it'd be better if oppression weren't there and until we get to that nobody can have well-being like i, I don't i don't want to go that way i think i think we can we can have some kind of idea of well-being that um is achievable even when people are oppressed um the extent of that i'm not sure um cuz obviously right. there's some forms of oppression that just seem so extreme that i don't i don't know okay i don't know about that um, yeah because
0: your project your project just sounds so reasonable to me I'm wondering <laughs> I'm, lo- I'm wondering what, what what's the counter argument is it is that what is what you just indicated maybe one counter argument well it doesn't apply to extreme forms of oppression compassion doesn't work or something like that it, it, or it's not uh, doesn't provide the necessary motivating force that anger does going back to the beginning of our discussion like what is the counterpoint to your project or maybe there is no counterpoint because what you no one has explored these connections
1: well, I think there's I think there's a lot of counterpoints. I think those that you just mentioned are, are big. Um, I think I think some folks would say, um, I think some folks would say to the anger project that you know I, I'm I'm arguing that we shouldn't be angry because it's bad for us. I think some people would say um, that's just not the right answer morally speaking. Um, yeah. One, I think people would say anger is natural and you can't get rid of it. I think a lot of folks think that, um, and I think they would also say um it is morally correct to be angry um and and like so for example lisa Tessman would would say that it is morally correct for us to be angry at oppression um and it is unfortunate that that's bad for our well-being now
0: um, but, but that's the proper ethical response.
1: Exactly, that's the correct ethical response, and it it leads to the eventual flourishing of future generations. This anger is is going to allow us to fight oppression effectively, um, and it's going to allow us to be good, moral, virtuous people, um, and then eventually people will be able to live better. Um, so, um, so she takes that view. Um, I think a lot of. I think there's a lot of pushback um, from from feminist philosophy because one of the big dangers of my project is um, loosening your grip on the self, um, and I think for um, for feminist philosophy, the self is a, a really important topic, um, and there's a lot of worries about um, kind of undermining identity um, because in the in the past, women's identity has been undermined, um, and so there's there's. That's a very delicate kind of situation where I think there's a lot of overlap because they um, there's a, a a lot of stuff in the feminist tradition that's about how the self is socially constructed, how yeah. it's less, um, you know, it's maybe a little more fluid than you think. It's not so there's a mutable ego. Yeah, exactly. So so there's so there's there's friendliness there, but there's also some worries I think that I'll have to deal with because um, because I, I don't want people to think that you know I'm saying.
0: Like we're trying to build women's identities up and you're kind of knocking it down by deconstructing the self in this way. Right. So the objector Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. yeah,
0: Yeah. I guess pers- I wouldn't, uh, I don't know. Personally, I would be hesitant to make sweeping conclusions about the usefulness of anger. You know, I guess I would mm-hmm. say like, yeah, maybe anger is the proper ethical response to some forms of extreme oppression going back to what we were just talking about. But I don't know. I, I just, I, I'd be tempted to say that it's just so contextual and you have to yeah talk about each given case um but yeah those are all the questions i got okay i'm exhausted
1: cool yeah do
0: you got any other any any other things you want to bring to the forefront or talk about
1: uh nope i think i'm i'm good
0: cool well thank you for doing this i really appreciate it yeah
1: thanks for having me this is a lot of fun
0: until next time